Oh, I didn't think that would be in there. Just kidding, that's a joke. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the, the Christmas story, which we talk about every year at this time, is a beautiful story. Um, and like all redemption stories, it is a beautiful mess of a story. It's one of the reasons why redemption in the Bible is decently, oftenly linked to childbirth. Because if you've ever been there for it, or if you've ever participated in it, which I guess all of us have participated in it from one side. Um, <laughs> but I don't remember mine. Um, you, here's what you know if you've been in the room as an adult, is that it's terrible, messy, painful, long, terrifying, and yet it still produces something marvelous. And I think that's one of the reasons why redemption is sometimes compared to childbirth. Um, <clears throat> in the redemption story, there's at least four dark chapters, things that are easy to read over, but that were clearly enormously painfully part of the beautiful mess of redemption that I honestly believe when we look at them and clearly in the context of the Christian story, will give it more weight and will actually produce more hope for us. This isn't just because ever since, you know, the nightmare before Christmas or something, I wanted to be like Tim Burton, I promise. Um, so what I want to talk about this morning, so that there's, there's four chapters of this. One is the destruction of our reputations and the destruction of the reputations of Joseph and Mary. The second is um, having to submit to a foreign king in the Magi having to come and submit that the, the one who would be their God and king was not a local speaker of their language, practicer of their astrology, um, fulfiller of their religion. They, they had to change their religion to come to salvation. That's not easy. That's extremely painful and difficult for a human being to recognize that the king that has rightful reign over them is a foreign ruler, and they will be our foreign to them. The third is that they had, to, Mary and Joseph and Jesus had to pick up and be refugees in Egypt for who knows, for a while. They, I mean, they had to leave their home for a third time um, a, a couple that was so poor that when they dedicated Jesus, they dedicated him with doves because they couldn't afford the greater sacrifice. Many argue that in God's providence, the reason why gold was one of the gifts given by the Magi is because God in his providence knew they would need it in their time in Egypt just to survive. And then lastly, one of the things that we read over so fast is a horrible massacre of a a group of innocent children. This is all part of the Christmas story. And if you realize that, you realize that, that the Christmas story, the story of the coming of Christ, was about as terrible as the, the cross work of Christ's redemption, that, that all stories of redemption are beautiful. And all stories of redemption are beautiful messes. And my hope is that as we look at this for four weeks, you will, you will get some hope about yourself because likely if you're honest with yourself, that's what you are as a story of redemption, as, a, as an object of Christ's redemption, that, that you are, are being made into something beautiful 
and it's an enormously messy process and difficult and failure-possessing process, and yet that has always been the story of redemption. And that does not mean that God isn't in the story of your redemption. Every story of redemption that God is in is a messy one. It's a childbirth-like one. It's like this. It's, it's a little bit dark. But yet, it is a story of redemption. So, let's look at first this, this idea of, um, of the loss of your name. Um, one of the things that we don't think about as much, because our culture has humiliated the idea, is we don't really think about re- our reputations anymore because reputation used to be associated with the things like chastity or you know moral purity and the idea of reputation was kind of connected with this idea of the establishment people liking you and so disestablishment and the sexual revolution kind of upended that whole idea right you know you know powerful women are are women who who don't care about their reputation because Reputation is a way to keep people oppressed and, and put people in little boxes and make them live according to scripts and so on. And so we've moved away from that idea, but here's the thing. It's, actual, it's actually a universal human need. What the concept of a good name gets at is that you believe deep down that you deserve to be looked at as you are. That the way people should look at you and the way people should treat you and the way people should think about you is what you are. You have the right to be seen and treated for what you really are. And that that idea of a good name is universal to all of us. Now, some of us, like, I, I can think of a number of stories of good In fact, this used to be part of people's family traditions back when we used to think of wanting to have certain kinds of families like with mothers and fathers who pass down a good name to their children. My, um, I'm named after Nicola Tornincasa, right? My mom's dad. And when he came here from Italy, he left a job as a um, minister of transportation in the city of Rome and he became a bottle cap maker in a factory in Erie, Pennsylvania. And he learned English and he worked very hard to make um, a name for his family and for himself in that city. And so when my mom, who had come over from Italy as well and didn't speak basically a word of English, applied for a job to work herself through college a second time, um, the minute they said, oh, you're Nicola's daughter, she had a job, just like that. I've heard that from a number of people, that they applied to a place that their father or their mother worked. And the minute the person knew they were the child of so-and-so and such-and-such, they had a job, just that simple. Because if you've ever, if you're in the position of hiring people, what is the thing that you're always really looking for? You're really not looking for skill, are you? There's lots of people with skills. You're looking for character. And you can't get that in an interview, can you? That's one of the problems with discrimination laws, isn't it? You don't want to discriminate, but here's the problem. You can't find what you need to know about what a good employee is in an interview or in an interview process. It's a terrible tension of human life. And so um, my wife's family, when they came from as Russian Jews to America. When they got to Ellis Island, I think this is Lexi's great-great-grandfather, their name was Smasinovich. But that sounded like a Russian Jew. And so when they got to Ellis Island, they changed it to Smasinow, right? So when I get really mad at my wife, I call her Smasinovich. So if you're at my house for a fight, that's where that comes from. 
Um, but the whole idea was like, our names represent our names represent something. Our names mean something, not just in and of themselves in terms of our ethnicity, but in terms of what we make them mean. And names carry reputation. Those reputations follow children. And we can say, well, you shouldn't you shouldn't pigeonhole people in. No, you shouldn't pigeonhole people in. People can live above their names, and people can live below their names. But it's very common for there to be consistency in names. Very common. Sorry, I've been, I've been sick. Now, one of the reasons I think it's really important for us to accept this is because your name, your, in, in that sense, your reputation is partly the concept of who and what you are to other people. And our internal sense of justice, which we all have, no matter how yours is calibrated, you have an internal sense of justice. There are certain things that when people do certain things against you, you get offended and you say it shouldn't be this way. Your internal sense of justice is calibrated to your belief about who you really are. And when people don't think of you and treat you the way you think you really are, your internal sense of justice is offended. Because I I know there's people that you're like, well, listen, Nick, I don't really care about your sense of approval or the churches or whoever's sense of approval. Listen, I understand that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a universal human faculty of a desire to be regarded as you believe you are. That is, you believe you have the right to a good name. <coughs> now, once, once you begin to realize, and let me, let me just give you an example of this. Um, I would be willing to bet that everybody in this room who is over 30 years old, knows at least one person who has, who has had their name pretty utterly disgraced, <clears throat> who didn't deserve it. And the closer that person is to you, the more it probably bothers you whenever you think about it. Now, I'm a pastor. I get to know more of these people than most. Um... I mean, one of my best friends in Florida um, had to be discharged from a high post in the military because a girl who was, I'm not going to go into the details, accused him of something that there was no evidence about, no physical evidence for, no human being believed it was true, who knew the person, and yet his whole military career was destroyed. <coughs> and, um, diminished greatly, and he couldn't work anywhere. He couldn't serve in our church, really, out of his, his own safety and, uh, and reputation and so on because people didn't do the right thing and because people in the legal system were crooked. And I know another guy who was an extremely effective sheriff of a town in Florida, and he, um, he saw all these young African-American men particularly getting, going into incarceration. And... Um, there was nothing between not enforcing the law and making felons of these young men. And it really bothered him. He's, he's white, a white guy. And he, so he, he wanted to come up with a camp because the, the idea was, his idea was that you had to make these young men strong without making them hard. Prison would harden them, but it wouldn't make them morally strong. And so you had to come up with a way to take these young men and make them morally strong, capable of living productive lives in a disciplined way, 
And the sort of mamby-pamby, this, this was his feeling, and I actually agree with him on this, way of like rehabilitating people wasn't going to work for, the, for these young men. And so they, cr- they created essentially this camp that was basically a military camp that these young men could choose if they wanted to and to go into this system and to go through this process of rehabilitation that wasn't nice and wasn't prison. And they saw a number of—I mean— I was told more than a couple hundred young men go through this and, and get decently good outcomes. And of course, people who didn't. But um, as some of you are probably familiar with the Eric Gardner case from this last few, few weeks, um, they had a guy who had sickle cell anemia. And in one of the cases where they had to take somebody down, um, the takedown complicated with a medical condition led to his death. And by that time, by the time that hit the press, he'd been promoted to another position. And the main politician of the state had to take his head to save his own political life and completely disgraced his name. It was, it was looked at as a racial issue because the young man who died was black. And um, it became one of these things. In order to save this level, you had to cut off the head of this level. And this is who he was. Disgraced name. Deserved anything but that as far as I could tell. I was his pastor. And those of us who've lived long enough to know in people intimately for whom that's their story, you, we might believe ourselves as like, well, I don't care. I mean, I think of myself as, I don't care what people think of me. I think of myself as one of those people. And dang it, people ought to look at me as somebody who doesn't care about what they think of me. But sometimes it takes another person's injustice to aliven our understanding of our own sense of injustice that when we see somebody else's name disgraced who doesn't deserve it and it bothers us and we wish we could do something about it, we recognize that inside we will, we, we will never get past because we shouldn't ever get past the universal human need of having a good name. The most rebellious of us want to be known as a person who is rebellious enough to be free and will not submit to your ideas and we care about our own name and we're independent enough and dang it, you better look at us that way. What that means, therefore, in relationship to our names is there is great pain in losing your good name and enormous temptation in keeping your good name. That's really important to recognize. There's great pain in losing your good name and there's great temptation in trying to keep it. Um... This is really important when we begin to think about being Christians in the world because when, when you begin to realize what our good name means to us, you'll begin to realize why public discourse is going the way it is. Because generally speaking, the way public discourse is going is, see, if you went back far enough, I was just reading this last week, I finished a biography of Charles Simeon. He was a pastor at Cambridge um, from the late 1700s to early 1800s. And he, he went after other Christians. He wrote them letters when they would say something intemperate about somebody else. And he would say, they would criticize somebody like a bishop or somebody in public life, and he'd say, listen, modesty and humility should have prevented you from saying such thing about the man. You may have attacked his view and sought to persuade people otherwise, but the great ornaments of Christian character, modesty and humility, should have prevented you from acting such. Right? <coughs> that conception 
the ad hominem attacks and personal attacks and so on in discrediting people and attacking people's voice and trying to wreck their name as a consummate and terrible sinful evil has been completely lost from our experience. It is generally thought of in, in certain groups of people and lots of groups of people that it's your duty to destroy somebody's name if they say something against your ideology. It's, it's very widely held. I remember not that long ago, there was the guy who's going to come for Life Fest at Broadfest. He's pro-life, and he'd gone around, you know, speaking at pro-life events and stuff. And one of, one of our elected officials said, such a horrible and hate—well, I don't know if she said horrible. Such a hateful man should never be allowed to speak in our city. And that was in the paper, right? To which I wrote a really brainy um, rebuttal to— um, and to which I think it probably was Lisa who was like, I'm not sure you want to send that. And I've written like four of those that Lloyd or Lisa or someone said, you know, that's really, that's really, um, that's really well written. <laughs> um, and it's really cutting in very neatly sarcastic ways. But it's, you know, it's just really, it's more of John Stewart than of Christ. And I just don't think it's appropriate. And, and they're always right, and they always end up in the trash heap, but I feel better having written it. But that's really, I just encouraged my sin, right? I mean, that's, that doesn't help me. I, I feel better, but I'm more sinful. Um, but the, the, the point is, is that when you, re, when you realize, when you recognize, you can be like, well, I don't care about my name. Yes, you do. And when you really realize how absolutely central it is to your idea of yourself, you'll realize how if I was able to access it, I could bully you terribly, because of the pain it would cost you to lose your name and because of the temptation that you have to do anything to keep your name. And so therefore, if I could call you a bigot publicly or if I could call you an ignoramus publicly or if I could call you and I could discredit the thing you care about, I could cause you terrible pain. I could shut you up. I could tempt you to come over to my side. I could bully you terribly. And here's the thing we need to realize as Christians. Once we realize that, we will begin to realize why the Bible refers to slander and gossip as terrible sins deserving hell. See, most people think that when you speak badly of another person because they deserve it, that, that you're just being honest. Right? And you see, the Bible talks about gossip as like you attacking another divine being seeking to efface the very image of God in them and to curse God himself. That's the way the Bible talks about it. In fact, in James it said, it talks about the tongue and it says, with your tongue, you praise God and you say God is amazing and then you turn around to a human being who is made in God's image and then you use that same mouth to curse them, right? Referring to gossip. And speak in slander in any way that we speak unlovingly badly about people. And he said, How does that work? <laughs> how does it work that you can, you got to give up one of those, is what he's saying. You either give up praising God or you give up cursing people who are made in God's image. 
You give up one of those. And listen, we live in a culture of slander and gossip. The the idea that we wouldn't gossip about people is a lost virtue, friends. I mean, you just go to any workplace around any water cooler or copier or cubicle. You go anywhere you want to. You read any newspaper. You read anything on the internet. You go anywhere, and it is just rife with the poison of gossip and slander and bigotry. It is, to me, one of the greatest cultural hypocrisies, and we have a lot of really good cultural hypocrisies. One of the greatest cultural hypocrisies is how we constantly tell our kids, don't be prejudiced, don't be bigoted, and then we, we write in and we speak in nothing but the language of bigotry. Everything we write and type is to destroy somebody, to destroy their name. And then we say, don't be a bigot. I don't know that person, but I know I can call them evil on the internet, but don't be prejudiced. Don't prejudge. But I know President Obama's heart. I know Governor Walker's heart. I know why they're doing these things. I know why this person said that. I know why this pastor is terrible. I know why this person isn't a Christian. And yet, don't be, don't be prejudiced. Don't be a bigot. As though these things mainly related to race or gender or something. No, they relate to humanity. They relate to hu- human beings. And the way we use our... Do you see what I'm saying here? And so therefore, when you begin to recognize this, and then you look at how God defends his own name in the Bible. And then, he, and then he says, we bear his image. And there is a inextricable link between the image and the name. And then we go out and do whatever we want with people's names. And we think it's just, it's all we're, we're just advocating for the truth. We're just, we're pushing forward reforms that need to happen. We're doing, we're doing, no, you're, no, we're not. We're seeking a flower and killing the plant, by killing the plant. It does not produce what we seek. But we, listen, we will do these things and we will fall for these things because of the universal human truth. That there's an enormous pain in the loss of names. You, you don't believe this, probably, consciously, but it's true about you. One of your greatest fears is to lose your name. It's one of your greatest fears. And therefore, one of your greatest temptations is to do anything to keep it. But I think one of the things we'll take from this passage, we can take from all of Christian history, and we can certainly take from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, is that great names have always been made by those who have the courage to lose them. Great names have always been made by those who have the courage to lose them. I want to look at three things in these passages about Mary and Joseph. The first is that reputations are notoriously inaccurate, so don't put your hope in yours. Reputations are notoriously inaccurate, so don't put your hope in yours. How many people know at least a handful of people who are thought better than they are? (laughs) And how many of us know a handful of people at least who are thought significantly worse than they are. Okay? Those of you who didn't raise your hands are incredibly unperceptive. Okay? Incredibly unperceptive of other human beings, or you have no relationships. Um, This is an enormous fact of human life. People are not what you think they are. And people's reputations, that is, the gathered perception of what somebody is like, are just, they're just notoriously inaccurate. 
When, and when we look at this Christianly, one of the things we have to recognize is, A, nobody deserves a good reputation. Like if, we, if we actually look at the gospel and look at what it says about us, about our sin, about what we're like, about the sinful condition that the image of God has been dragged into, and the way we use that to get what we want, and the idolatries that we have, and the lies we don't just believe, but we want to believe. And all of this, and we look at all that, no one, biblically speaking, Christianly speaking, deserves a good reputation. You might deserve one, like, in some ways relative to everybody else, but no one deserves a good reputation. In addition to that, Whatever good reputation you do deserve is entirely unstable, especially, especially in this culture. One of the things that um, when you look at Mary and Joseph, um, do you know how many people lived in Nazareth when Mary lived there? It's like six, it's, uh, if you went to Nazareth today, it's like 65,000 people. You know how many people lived there when she was there? About 200. As about, about as many people as are in this room right now. A little more, maybe. Now think about that. You live in a town this big, and you got pregnant. How long does it take before every single person knows? And you, and you don't have a likely story. <laughs> right? And then, I mean, think about it. What was Mary's, what was Mary's greatest personal cost in bearing Christ? What was her greatest personal cost? Lots of women have children. It's a cost. But her greatest personal cost was no doubt her reputation. No doubt. That her good name was destroyed, and the good name of her whole family, probably, was destroyed. And then think about Joseph, okay? So, so here's a guy. He's engaged to a girl. She turns up pregnant, okay? He's like, I think I'm going to break up with her. It's the only way to save his name, right? The only way to save his name. And an angel comes to him and he goes, um, actually, this is just what she says. You know, it's, a, it's of God. And, and here's, and actually, the, the, here's the interesting thing. The angel tells Joseph as much or more about what Jesus is going to be than he tells Mary. He tells Joseph what Jesus is going to do and therefore what he's going to be named, Right? He says, therefore, you can marry. Now think about this. Everybody's going to hate Joseph. Because the wicked men are going to look at Joseph as a stupid tool. Because that they think of themselves as smart and sort of like slick. And like, this guy's stupid enough to get her pregnant. So even the bad people are going to be like, oh, how could you be so stupid? And the good people are going to look at him as wicked and weak. And there's just no way to save that. And here's the thing. That's not that uncommon. The instability of your reputation, of all of our reputations, is very volatile. One, because you don't deserve a good reputation. I don't deserve a good reputation. And two, your reputation is perfectly sacrificable in the work and progress of the beautiful mess that is the work of, the rede- work of redemption in the plan of God. The, the upstanding, acceptable nature of your reputation is not something you're entitled to. 
here's, and here's how we can be keyed in on this. We shouldn't feel entitled to anything that God laid down as not being entitled to in the person of Christ. Okay, that ought to key us in. And when we see that Christ laid something down, we need to be ready that when we follow that Christ, that our right to that thing may very well be laid down as well. Right? Which is how normally Christians, in a very cursory kind of way, go, oh, that means I could die for Jesus. I'm sure I'll, I mean, I'm American, so that'll never happen to me, but I, that could happen, right? All right. Way to be flippant, right? I mean, I, I'm sure that's true of me, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sure if somebody walked in here and was going to kill me, I'd be like, oh yeah, this is for real. It's very hard to come to terms with that, but listen, listen. Here's one that could totally happen to you and could happen to you tomorrow. Jesus laid down his good name. He was willing to let his good name that he totally actually deserves, different from you and I, right? Be totally obliterated. You you and I better be ready if we walk with him for that to happen to us. And in this culture, that could totally happen to us. Please, the second thing, which is that sometimes um, good reputations or good names are actually found by losing them in obedience. Um, there's not, a, you know, there's not a lot said about Mary and Joseph in the Bible. There's very little said about Joseph. When Jesus is on the cross, he commends Mary to John, the youngest apostle, and says, um, uh, behold your mother, mother behold your son, meaning that John, um, the apostle John at that point seemed, was very young and apparently could still use some mothering, but yet at the same time, Mary was about to lose her oldest son, and Jesus was putting him under the care of John and his disciples, right? He, he does that on the cross, and what a, he would not have to do that if Mary's husband was alive, right? You just don't hear anything about Joseph after about age 12. So he, apparently he had, he had survived at least till Jesus was age 12, because remember they go to the thing and they lose him, and they're both looking for him, and so on, which apparently means you can be a godly parent and lose your children every now and then. Right? Um, the, the main point there is that, you know, Joseph was still alive, but at some point it looks like Joseph dies. Very little is said about this guy. He worked hard. He went to work every day. He apparently built stuff out of wood. <clears throat> he raised some sons and maybe some daughters. I don't know. We don't know how many children he and Mary had after Jesus was born. That's all we know. And we know his reputation was destroyed and probably never rehabilitated in his lifetime. Why do you think they settled in Bethlehem after Jesus was born? Do you ever think about that? They're from Nazareth. They went to Bethlehem for the census. Now, you could argue they didn't go back to Nazareth because they ran out of money. Right? Because they're poor. Maybe. Maybe Bethlehem, though, was closer to the capital city. There was more work. He was a carpenter. And maybe they could start fresh. Maybe they could, it wasn't a small a town, it was a ways from home, maybe word hadn't totally gotten around, maybe we could start over. Maybe people wouldn't look at us as that couple. I don't know. But there's, there is something remarkable about m- both Mary and Joseph, and it's not that they're handsome. People, people, I, people say all the time, you know, Mary was probably 15 when she got pregnant, and it's, maybe, maybe. Maybe Mary was poor and really ugly in 29. And her family couldn't find her a suitable husband. And she didn't have a dowry. And, but she was really ugly and really godly. 
I mean, it actually says in Isaiah that the, the Messiah was going to be ugly. It says there would be nothing about his physical appearance that would draw anybody to him. Which is part of the beauty that people are drawn to Jesus because of who he was, not because he was handsome. Right? It's our prejudices that imagine this beautiful 15-year-old having a baby. Which totally could be true. I don't know. The point is, here's the thing that's remarkable about them. It's not that they're handsome or cute or whatever, or that they have a donkey, okay? That, oh, we don't know any of that stuff. The only thing that we know about Mary and Joseph is that they obeyed easily. They just said, they didn't whine, they didn't complain, they didn't him and haw, they didn't go back and forth, they didn't pull a Jonah and had to get pulled back by a whale or something. I mean, like, they just flat did it. I mean, God is like, so, you know, an angel comes and says to Mary, you're going to have a baby, it's going to be from God, there's not going to be a man involved in the making of it and so forth. And, she, you know, she's like, oh, okay, so how's it going to work? Okay, great. And then, and then what does Mary say? So she, Mary only says like two things, right? She says, one, how does a woman actually get pregnant this way? Which is a, a sharp question, right? And then the second question that she asks is very— the second thing she says isn't a question. It's, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be just like you've said. That's it. If that's what God wants. I read this really neat quote in— um, oh, it's Charles, in this Charles Simeon biography. Charles Simeon's dying. He's on his deathbed. And somebody comes in, one of his nurses, and says, um, Dr. Simeon, or, um, or um, Brother Simeon, what, what would you like? Would you like to take your medicine now or take it later? Because he was in pain and so on. And he's, and he's, so he's this is like 78-year-old man dying. He, goes, he says, don't ever ask me what I would like. And they're kind of like, he's like, I, I'm submitted to the will of Christ. I like everything. Everything that is his will. I like my medicine now. I like my medicine later. I like to die this moment. I like to live another hundred years. I, and the will of Christ, I like everything. My, I've submitted myself to the will of God. God can't do anything anymore that I don't like. Which at first sounds a little like heresy, right? Wait, hold God can't do anything you don't like? I don't think that's how it works, buddy. But, but here's the thing. When you decide you want whatever the other person wants— they can't do anything anymore that you don't want. It's the only way you can control God. Right? It's the only way you can control God. Be like, whatever you want, I want. It's, kind of, it's also a really good way to annoy your older sibling. Right? To just be like, I want to do whatever you want to do. It's, it's a great way to annoy your girlfriend, too. Right? I mean, but the point is, is that, oh, that's what obedience creates. And clearly that was in Mary's heart. Trust. That is, she trusted more in the name of God and in his ability to vindicate her name ultimately than in her temptation to protect her own name or the pain she knew she'd feel in the destruction of her name. And Joseph was the same way. He knew how people would regard him. But the Bible's really clear. In fact, it doesn't even record anything he says. He's just, it just records that he's a man of action. You know, guys, guys stereotypically like to be thought of as doers. It just says, the angel said that, and it just says, Joseph woke up. He went home. He took Mary. He didn't have union with her till the child was born. He named him Jesus. Like, he just did it. He just flat did it. 
And that's it. And there's no, there's no like internal literary struggle of like, no, it's just. In fact, the only time where there's a poetic expression about this is in Luke's gospel, the song of Mary, when Mary sings poet about how blessed she is to be chosen for this. The last thing is, um, whoops, I'm not going to cover this right now is that um, the only way to sort this out, this whole name issue, is when you really believe that Jesus' name is better than your name. That the name that you're really interested in is Jesus' name, his reputation. And that the only way you're going to have the reputation that you, you want to have, and that you, the only way you can ever have that reputation that you both deserve, sort of, and want, is when that, your name is connected to Jesus' name such that you are defined by him. And when that's true, when we realize that you won't live for your name anymore, you'll live for his. And you'll be able to trust that he can disgrace your name just like he disgraced his. But you can trust that no matter what happens to your name temporally right now, ultimately, he's going to vindicate his name. All disgrace will be removed from his name. And if your name is connected to his, that will happen to yours too. One of the things that people often forget about the cross is that crucifixion was designed by the Romans not just to be the most painful death that a human being could experience. It was designed to be both the most painful death that they could come up with. Because, I mean, think about it. When people say that, do you really believe it? Have you ever heard that before? Well, crucifixion is the most painful death ever come up with by human beings, right? Do you ever go, Really? Because, you know, we've come up with a lot of horror movies now in the U.S., and some of them are pretty creative. I mean, are you really sure that crucifixion is literally the— see, maybe, maybe, I don't know. It's terrible. It's one of the worst, but it's not just—crucifixion wasn't just about the pain. It was about the indignity and the humiliation. I mean, think, this is what impaling is all about, that you're dead before you're dead. It's why in the French Revolution, they would lift up the head of somebody whose head was cut off by the guillotine so they could see their body before they died. It's to create an extended level of indignity. It's to give a lethal wound that doesn't kill right away. That's what impaling is. In addition to being stripped naked and being put up in a public place so that people could go by and make fun of you, so that people could go by and throw things at you, so that people could stand there and watch birds peck at your eyes. That was the whole purpose of it. It wasn't mainly a function of pain, though it was a function of pain. An enormous part of it was its indignity. It's the reason they didn't whip him to death. Why not just whip him to death? You can do that. Less time, less effort, less expense, more fun. The reason you take him out and put him on a cross on a street is to maximize the indignity, the disgrace. When we recognize that, you will begin to recognize the full scope of what God did with his own name. And when you realize that, you will realize that God can be trusted in the person of Jesus with your name.
presently and eternally. You'll realize that Jesus gets how you feel about your name. Once you realize that what I'm saying about your name is true, that you really do feel this way about your name, that it's a universal human need and desire and passion, that you, you can't get rid of your desire to have a good name any more than you can get rid of your desire to be happy. It's an unconquerable human desire. The question is not whether or not you'll want it. The question is how will you seek it? When you realize that, it's comforting to know that Jesus understands that about you. He understands that you have an un undestroyable desire to be happy and you have an undestroyable desire to have a good name. He understands that. But what you, here's what you need to understand. He feels similarly about his name, which is infinitely greater than ours and infinitely more deserving to be seen that way than ours. And you see, most of us have nothing like a passion for his name and reputation like we have for our own. But our passion for our name controls our lives. Controls our lives. What would it be like if we understood his passion for his name and we really understood that and embodied it in our lives? It would control everything about our lives. We would be like Simeon. Don't ask me what I like. I like everything my Savior likes. Better ask me, you better tell me what to do or ask me what I choose to do, but don't ask me what I like. Which I love that. It's so precise. The second thing is you can accept and, and, and deal with the loss of, of your good name and the threat of the loss of your good name and the story of your name being attacked and rehabilitated. Because and, I don't know about you, but my name has gone like this over time. I mean, very few people, like, their name goes up and then plummets down, and that's all there is to it. Our names tend to... And it's harrowing unless you recognize Jesus' name went this far down, and Jesus' name is this high, and ultimately your name's going to be connected to his, and people certainly are going to hate you and say all kinds of terrible things about you. In fact, Jesus said that in Matthew 5, right? I mean, go home. Not right this minute. When you go home, open up your Bible to Matthew 5 and read the Beatitudes in relationship to how we should talk about other people. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Right? Because it ends with, blessed are you in what? When people say all kinds of terrible things about you. Right? Because then you can say terrible things back at them. Remember he said that? He didn't say that. <laughs> That's the New International Nick version, right? No, he says, blessed are you. He doesn't, he says this. He says later, because you get to love your enemy. But he says, because great is your reward in heaven. Why? Because that's what happened, because what's happening to your name is what happened to Jesus' name. When your, what happens to your name is what happens to Jesus. And he actually, you know what he says? He doesn't even compare it to himself. He says, that's what happened to all the prophets before you. Everybody who ever lived for the truth and spoke the truth. You know what happened to them? Some people responded to what they said, then other people trashed their name as much as possible. And when you speak the truth lovingly and people trash your name as much as possible, and some listen and others don't, <clears throat> be happy about that. Because all the pro that's what happened to every human being that's ever come before you that's lived for the truth, and then later we find out that's exactly what happened in Jesus' name. He said that would happen to us. And then lastly, to the extent to which your name is connected to his, Jesus has promised one day to totally and completely vindicate his own name. Jesus will be 
the name of, that's why the Bible says that the name above every name, his reputation will one day be seen absolutely for what it is and you will be seen for what you are to the extent to which your name is connected to his. That's all. It says in Isaiah 56, 4 and 5 about people who don't have children, who can't pass on their name through offspring. He says, for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs, that is, people who are made infertile, who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, that is, the righteous will live by faith, right? He says, to them I will give within my temple, that is, the presence of God and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And then in Revelation 2.17, in the, in the early chapters of Revelation, there is this, there are these statements, there are these seven churches, and in each one, Jesus comes, Jesus sends a messenger, and the messenger says basically, really appreciate this about you, you really need to clean this thing up. <laughs> and at the end of every one of those letters, there's this place where he says, but to the one who overcomes, I will give blank. And it's, it's, it's all kinds of different things, right? But in, in chapter 217, in, at the end of one of those letters, he says this. He says, and, and, and this is the formula, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As anybody who's willing to hear God, you listen to this, because this is true. And he says this, to him who overcomes, I will give, okay? And then in each letter, exactly what that is is different. But listen, here's one of the promises. I will give some of the hidden manna, which is a, the food of God, right? And then he says, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. One of the promises he actually gives in the book of Revelation is for people whose names have been destroyed in this city. He says, one of the things I will do, I will, I'm going to give you, I'll give you the stone. I mean, I don't know if that's literal that he's going to give us a stone. I, I don't know. But that these people's names, they will get a new name, one rehabilitated, recreated, remade by God that they have possession of, that belongs to them, that is a gift from God, that defines them from Jesus. And that ultimately is the only hope for our names. It's the only thing that will stabilize us from our fear of the pain of losing our name and will strengthen us with courage in <clears throat> the cowardice of seeking to do anything not to lose our good name. It's the only way we'll have the courage to stand up when people bully, bully us and try to tear apart our name from our being, which is, would be the loss of our integrity. At any moment where we seek to put out an image of ourselves that's different from the reality of ourselves is a destruction of our name, of who we really are. It, it, it separates who we believe we are with who we project we are. All of that is a loss of integrity. But if we're going to live out a real integrity towards God, we've got to recognize that we're going to be enormously vulnerable. If we, if, we, if we live a life of love, we're going, our name will be vulnerable. If we live a life of truth, our name is going to be vulnerable. And it's going to be terrifying, and we're going to be tempted to do anything we can to protect it. And the only way you're going to have the courage to make a great name is if you have the courage to do something that will endanger it and maybe cause you to lose it. And the, the only way you can do that, if you truly have a deep, deep, deep need to have a good name is to put your trust in the one who vindicates all names that are connected to his ultimately. It's the only way. The only way is for you truly 
to believe in, and I realize that this is a Christian cliche phrase, but I've just tried to spend 47 minutes filling it with meaning so that this aphorism really means something to you. It's why you need to care about the name of Jesus. And that your name would be connected to the name of Jesus. And that you would walk according to the name of Jesus. And that that would all matter and that would define. And so that your desire for a good name would be so connected to your desire that Jesus would have a good name among all people. That when the day comes where his name is made great, your name is made great with it. Not because you'll deserve it, but because you'll simply get to be part of his name's party. And that happens, Scripture says, by putting our trust in Jesus, by believing in him, by confessing our sins before him, by asking him to be our Savior, by accepting his death on the cross, the destruction of his name for our name. We, we talk about his sin, our sin for his righteousness. Well, one of the trades is our bad name for his good name. He took our bad name so that we could be participants in his good name. Mary and Joseph are just, a, just another example of people who lost their names so that the name of Jesus could come forth, but who are ultimately remembered as people with great names. Who should be revered more than Mary and Joseph? They have great names. They were faithful to lose theirs so that they could have a greater one in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, as we think about Christmas and the holidays and um, this time of year. <clears throat> we want to think about generosity and be generous as you're generous with us, and I pray that you'd lead us into that. But I pray that we would understand the beautiful mess of redemption, that it's more like childbirth than a lot of other things, that it's, it's messy and that so much of it is insecure, and we are insecure in our desire to keep our own good names and I pray that you would help us to be a people um, willing to walk the same path as Mary and Joseph because we believe in your great name. We believe in your, the, we, we want to be part of the greatness of your name. And we care, help us to care less for our reputation and more for yours and to be free of the cage of the temptation to save our own name at any cost. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.